I'd like to welcome all of you to the Prairie Dock Radio Program. Rick Holm isn't going to be with us today, but I'm really happy to welcome Jill Cruz. Jill Cruz is a family medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Welcome, Jill. Yes, thanks for having me again. Well, I'm so happy to have you back. You're becoming a regular on here, and we love it. I have to comment on any of you listening who watched last week's TV show with with Dr. Jill Cruz and uh, two other compatriots. I'm trying. To, you were talking about kindness in medicine, and you had Jerry Freeman, who's a phenomenal physician, and Mary Nettleman. I had not met. I've not met, but I feel like she's an old friend. She was so impressive on that show but mostly you were impressive i thought it was a great show you really did a wonderful job well thank you it was a really fun uh, topic to discuss yes uh, kindness yeah. in medicine i yes. thought it was just it was anyone who saw it really enjoyed it and if you didn't see it you can go we always tell you you can go online to dr holmes uh website and you can see last week's show with dr cruz it it, it was just a wonderful discussion about kindness and medicine and the importance it's good to be a knowledgeable surgeon but if you're or a knowledgeable physician surgeon anything but if you're not kind to your patients and don't recognize their needs they don't really care that you're that good right exactly <laughs> they just doesn't come across well that was last week. This week, the program on tomorrow night will actually not be on tomorrow night because I don't know if it's football or fundraising. Public TV is doing something tomorrow night. So it'll be, uh, but the program was still being taped and it's called an, Our Opioid Crisis. It will be on Facebook. So you can catch it on Facebook if you'd like to. This is really an interesting program and uh, the topic is frightening and real. Uh, do you have thoughts on the opioid crisis that's going on right now? There's a lot going on with this, and I think we're learning more and more when are opioids appropriate and when are they not, because it's kind of like fire. Fire is a wonderful thing. It can cook your food. It can heat your home, but a forest fire can also destroy an entire community or, or forest. I mean, so fire can be devastating and it can be useful. Opioids are exactly the same way. They can be devastating and destroy someone's life, or they could provide comfort and pain relief when used appropriately for you know someone's final day, someone that's dying from cancer, someone who has an acute issue like a after surgery or a broken leg or something that's going to be short-term. But long-term use of opioids for non-cancer pain is really where we've gotten into trouble. And a lot of that, I think, was physicians wanting to be kind and, and wanting to get their <laughs> patients out of pain. Right. And Make them comfortable. And the belief for a while was if you get ahead of the pain, they, they uh, uh, recover more quickly. Wasn't that? A exactly. And also uh, about 10 years ago or more, there was a big uh, push for making pain the fifth way we said the fifth vital sign the fifth thing that we look at on every single patient every single time so we made a real push that no one should ever be in pain which ah. is, is very noble and is a good thing we don't want people to be in pain but that was what we went to often as our choice to treat pain because we're kind of limited usually by someone by the time someone comes to the doctor, they've tried Tylenol, they've tried ibuprofen, they've tried heat, they've tried ice, they've tried stretching. So what do we have left to offer them? And a lot of times it was opioids or some of the other 
uh, pain medications were great, but insurance companies weren't covering them. So I can give you a $5 prescription for Vicodin, an opioid, or I can try to get you this uh, Voltaren gel, which was 80 to to $100. So which one are you going to take? Right, the $5 pill, because it'll solve my pain. And it's cheaper. Right. I mean, so a lot of times we had, and we still have, difficulties getting insurance companies to pay for non um narcotic pain medications or modalities such as you know acupuncture physical therapy you know there's lots of other things that we can use but unfortunately sometimes we have our hands tied with what the patient can afford what they have time to do because you know physical therapy is is a time commitment for people and not everyone has that luxury of being able to take that much time off work or away from their family especially if they're a caregiver for someone else I've had it where people need to go to therapy and they're like, well, I'm the only one who takes care of my husband. I can't leave them home alone for an hour or more three times a week. What am I supposed to do? There are a lot of problems involved with pain and controlling pain. And opioid obviously became a crisis because it was one answer that they didn't recognize uh, the outcome. So thoughts on that. If you have any questions about painkillers or any other questions of Dr. Cruz, why don't you give us a call? We are going to take our first break. Uh, we would really welcome your calls. If you give us a call at 692-1430, we'd be glad to respond to anything you, that might be on your mind, and we will be back right after these words. By living a healthy lifestyle, you can lower your risk for heart disease and heart attack. A healthy lifestyle includes the following, eating a healthy diet, maintaining a healthy weight, getting enough physical activity, not smoking or using other forms of tobacco, and limiting alcohol use. All the providers at the Avera Medical Group Brookings hope you will follow these guidelines. For more information on a healthy heart, speak with your provider at 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Dr. Holm isn't with us today, but in his stead is Dr. Jill Cruz. And we we're discussing a topic that will be discussed uh, by Dr. Holm tomorrow night, although it won't be on public TV, it will be on Facebook. So you can catch the program on Facebook and it's discussing opioid. When Dr. Cruz mentioned uh, pain and how they dealt with it, she mentioned that there's, they added pain as the fifth of the vital signs to look for when a patient comes in. What are the other, the first four, you got my mind going on that. What are the so first four? Vital signs are just what they, they sound like, vital. It's, it's important information to know about a patient that kind of gives you a clue to what they're doing. The, all the other vital signs are very objective. So it's your pulse um, or how fast your heart is beating. Uh, it's your blood pressure. It's your temperature. And I believe weight is the last one. So those are the um, vital, vital signs, signs that, that you people look, are look at. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. you know, if someone's in shock, you know, they would have a, a high heart rate and a low blood pressure, and, and that would be things that we would be looking at. If they're in congestive heart failure, has their weight gone up because they have extra fluid on them? So these are all very objective things that, you know, multiple people can measure. Pain is very subjective, and, you know, there's people with different pain tolerances. I've had people that, you know, I want to give them something for pain. They're like, yeah, I'm yeah, fine. I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay. I'm fine. Usually the, the, the old stoic farmers that are incredibly tough and strong and, oh, it's just, I'll put some duct tape on it and it'll be fine. <laughs> you 
And I was like, oh, no. You need, maybe need a little more help. Yeah. I'm thinking my husband just had a tooth pulled on Monday, and we got a prescription for an antibiotic and a prescription for a pain pill and a prescription for a mouthwash. So I went into the pharmacist, and I said, I will fill the antibiotic in the mouthwash. Tell me about this pain pill. And she told me, and I said, you know, I'm not going to fill that. Will you hold on to it? Mm-hmm. And I came home, and I told my husband, you don't want that. Don't I? I said, no, no, you'll be okay. You just had one tooth pulled, you'll live. And we have not filled that. He's taken ibuprofen, and he's just doing fine. So I think sometimes, even if a doctor prescribes a pain pill, is it okay to just say, nah, I'll wait? Y- you can always say, I will never be offended for someone not taking a pain medication. I mean, okay. If, yeah, I don't want people to suffer needlessly, but definitely it it can be done. My husband passed a kidney stone and just took ibuprofen. So That's not easy. I, oh. I was impressed. Yes, you would be. But people are leery of pain pills, so they if are. you're even if they're prescribed, you can choose yourself to use ibuprofen and see if it works. In my husband's case, if he were really in pain, you know I'd have gotten back, gone back and gotten the prescription, but he was really doing well in ibuprofen. Exactly. So why get the pain pill? And, and I would say if the pain pill's on file at the pharmacy, that's probably the best place to leave it. If you fill it and you have it sitting at home, then you run the risk of someone else taking it that shouldn't have it. Because most uh, opioid addiction and um, misuse is from a legitimately prescribed medication so it's not like someone was is making these medications in their bathroom or (laughs) you know in some drug lab these are pharmaceuticals that are diverted or stolen borrowed given from someone who had it for and was given for a legitimate need and now is being taken by someone for recreational purposes which i have unfortunately seen that happen in my practice where we can't get on top of a patient's pain, you know, grandma's pain, and then find out that the grandchild is going in and stealing some of the medications. And it comes up and like, well, we would keep doing higher and higher doses thinking we were trying oh. to get the pain under control and found out, no, they weren't even really taking it. And if they have dementia and they don't remember how many pills they have or, they don't know. or when. Or you could throw in an aspirin in the bottle and take you the could. other one, you know, throw you in really, a similar I, looking pill. I've seen people yeah. do this. Yeah. And it's it's sad that this addiction will cause people to do things like that as causing other family members to suffer. But that shows you just how powerful and strong this addiction is that it will cause people to do terrible things to themselves and their families. Any of the... Uh, news programs or anything you see where they may interview someone who was addicted to pain pills, they're just people look normal. They're just fine. And they just say, I never me. It never would have been me. I can't believe I would do the things I did for these pills. It's just so frightening because you have people who have been living normal lives and then they get hooked in these. And it's hard to know if you're going to be that person. I've had people that take medication and it makes them throw up and they're nauseated and they say, oh my gosh, how could everyone ever be addicted to these? They make <laughs> me feel terrible. And other people, just the opposite. They get the euphoria, they get the high. It's, it's all in you know, brain chemistry and how our brain is wired and the reward center. And basically addiction hijacks that reward system and makes you crave something even when it causes bad outcomes for you and your family. For you and your family because mm-hmm. anyone with any type of addiction that's overwhelming, if it's pain pills, if it's alcohol, you know it's not affecting just that person. Exactly. It's affecting a whole family and all their friends, people mm-hmm. they work with. You just, you know, you have someone who's living a normal life and all of a sudden 
they're acting very strange. You don't know why, and this this could be it. Yes, you know? I mean, there's lots of what we call functional addicts where they're going about their daily life, they're doing their thing, and then when they get home in their privacy of their home, they give in to their addiction. And you know, you think of an addict of being some junkie that's homeless on the street with you know no nothing good going for them in life, but there are their parents, there's, you know, upstanding family members and members of society that are going to work and doing what they need to do. And then on weekends, maybe, you know, giving into this addiction and, and, um, eventually losing control of what they do during that normal life only lasts so long. Right. Eventually it will, eventually it gets, um, most people, it Mm -hmm. will catch up to them. Yeah. and people will find out and then there's usually some very severe consequences as we're talking about this if someone is in this situation or living with someone where they know is going through this what would you suggest they do to get help for their friend or their family member who hasn't even asked for help mm-hmm. is there anything you can do for them i would say definitely be there for them and there's a lots of support groups for family members of people who are dealing with addiction um so there's like elanon and elatine for alcohol um, there's the same basic uh, groups for narcotic abuse as well um, there's lots of local resources for people that are seeking treatment and i would talk to the treatment facilities and say hey how do i help this you know do you need to do an intervention and and ask these people because this is what they do every day they know how best to guide you through this especially if someone is in denial that they're having a problem or uh, isn't ready for help because forcing someone when they're not ready isn't going to work generally there's there's exceptions to every role we've learned in medicine never to say always or never Uh, But on a general rule, until someone realizes that there's a problem and they're ready to make a change, um, supporting them but not enabling them is, it's it's a very difficult tightrope to walk um, and something you shouldn't do alone. Okay, so don't, if you're listening and you're going through this, don't be alone. There are many support groups right here in Brookings that would be of great help to you. We're going to take our next break. We'll be back right after these words. Millions of people in the United States are not getting screened for colorectal cancer as recommended. They are missing the chance to prevent colorectal cancer or to find it early when treatment often leads to a cure. The vast majority of new cases of colorectal cancer, about 90%, occur in people who are 50 or older. The U.S. Preventative Services Task Force recommends screening beginning at age 50. If you think you may be at increased risk for colorectal cancer, learn your family history and ask your doctor if you should begin screening before age 50. Talk with your provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Dr. Holm is not with us today, but I'm happy to welcome Dr. Jill Cruz, a family medicine physician with the Avira Medical Group Brookings. Good to have you back with me today. This has been not an upper discussion, but an important discussion on opioid addiction. If you'd like to know more, you can check out the the TV program that Dr. Holm did, and it'll be on Facebook. And if you just go to Dr. Holm's website, which is prairiedoc.org, you'll find that program on it. 
I did want to ask a question. This, this did not come in, but it was a question that came up in a discussion with two men that I know, and they both used CPAP machines. And one was saying, well, as long as I get four hours a night in, Medicare will pay for it. You know, if you're less than four hours, they don't pay for it. And the other one said, but I keep my machine going all night. And he said, well, it must be safe if you use it for four hours. Do you have any advice for people? These guys really don't know what is the right. I guess if you have at least four hours of CPAP, it's good. But do you suggest keeping the machine on all night? What do you think? Well, do you want to breathe for four hours a night, or do you want to breathe the entire night? That's well, that's kind of my thought on it, but, you know, they don't listen to yes. these women. Okay. So <laughs> Medicare, that is their rule to show minimum amount of compliance. So they say if you are uh, getting this machine provided through Medicare money, they want to make sure that they are getting a return on their investment, and the return on that investment is your health. So they basically are saying if you are not being compliant and if you're not doing your part by using the machine – then why should we pay for it? Which makes, makes sense. sense. Yes. Right. So, so how do you determine whether someone is trying? Because some people do say, you know, after so many hours, uh, you know, the seal hurts around my mouth or my nose, or I feel suffocated, or I, I, I just want to take it off. So we don't expect 100% perfect compliance. So they basically came up with a threshold. What's the minimum amount of time that you should use this machine to get some benefit from it? And their threshold is using it at least four hours a night. And the machine records all of this. So it can tell when it's on. It can tell when it's being used. It can tell when there's air leaks. And um, when you take it back to the home medical store, it will download a compliance chart. And it sends me a beautiful two-page report saying what nights of this past 30 days has it been used for how long and how well. So it tells me, are the settings good? Do we need to adjust the settings? Are is someone having problems because the pressure's too high or it's too low and or the seal isn't right so that's where that magical four hours comes in but that's a minimum to get some benefit but that's just like saying do you want four hours of good sleep a night is that enough to survive off of maybe Might for be. some <laughs> people but i would recommend getting more and using it uh, as much as you can because you're getting the benefit when you're using it not when it's sitting on the nightstand Okay, well, that makes sense. Well, the two of them both thought they were right, so this would be fun. I'll make sure okay. that they know the answer is, sure, four hours is a minimum, but it it behooves yes. you to use it longer, right? Exactly. Yeah. You're only getting benefit when it's using it. If you're fine holding your breath for the rest of the night, be my guest. <laughs> but it, you're not getting the benefit from it that you deserve, Okay. Honestly. And we're talking CPAP machine because it has to do with, I should have preceded that, with sleep apnea. Sleep Maybe you apnea, could just, yes. Tell people that, and then we'll... Some people aren't familiar yes. with it. So, so sleep apnea, there's um, two different types, but the most common type that most people talk about is what's called obstructive sleep apnea, where the soft tissues and the tongue kind of fall in the back of the throat and close it off while you're sleeping. So someone will snore really loudly, or they'll have pauses in breathing, or they'll gasp, or suddenly choke and, and kind of wake themselves up. Well, when that happens... Um, basically, you're holding your breath for several seconds a night until your brain um, notices that your oxygen levels in your blood is dropping and then basically forces you to wake up. So people are having these micro-awakenings when they're having these apneic episodes. And basically, consider what it, you would feel like if you held your breath for 30 to 60 seconds, 50 times an hour. Oh, wow. 
It's not good. No, you're not <laughs> getting good sleep. So all of those micro awakenings, you're, you're getting very interrupted sleep and your oxygen levels are dropping. So neither of those is good for you or your body because sleep is when your body heals itself. It's when you replenish and your cells fix themselves. So it, it's really important for memory, for long-term memory and processing to get good sleep. So if you're not getting good sleep, and that can help or that can uh, make so many other health issues worse. Blood pressure, it can make worse. It can make, um, like I said, memory issues worse. And then can make you dangerous when you're driving or doing activities because you, you can know, just I've, doze off. <laughs> I've heard of people falling asleep while driving and, and getting in car accidents. So it can be very dangerous for untreated sleep apnea. So it's very good if you if you uh, actually experience any of this, you definitely should talk to your doctor, and they will have you do the sleep test, which is just very beneficial for exactly. people. Absolutely. And you do need your sleep. You're talking about sleep. As people get older, do they require less sleep, or do they just sleep less? Which is it? <laughs> a little bit of both. Okay. So actually, you do require a little bit less sleep. You, the time when people need the most sleep in their life are newborns and teenagers. And the teenagers make sure that they do get it. They do. My goodness, they, really they can sleep. It's just amazing how much they mm -hmm. can. Okay. But they require that sleep. They now, as you sleep. get older, like past 60 or 70, you're going to you're sleep less? You're going to sleep less. That's, that's a normal uh, part of aging. Now, again, if you feel like you're not being rested, and that can all be a sign, are you having sleep apnea? Are you having other issues going on? But... People do tend to sleep a little bit less. And, and we're not talking, you know, going from eight hours to four hours. We're talking going from eight to seven. Okay. So it's not dramatic or significant. But um, and uh, the other thing to think about is, are you getting sleep during the day, too? So if someone's taking a two or three hour nap in the afternoon, it may be harder to get to sleep at they night. They won't so, sleep that long, right? Yeah. Okay. So well, it's sleep kind of, is important. Yes. You know, it seems like kind of silly to be worried about sleep, but it really can make a difference in your health too oh, if you yes. don't pay attention to your sleep. Physical health, mental health. For me, lack of sleep is the biggest thing that uh, affects me as far as mental health for how I'm feeling and, and how kind and compassionate I can be <laughs> as a physician. So if I don't get a good night's sleep, um, I'm, I'm sorry Avoid to my patients the, the next day. Avoid the doctor that day, right? Avoid me the next day, yes. <laughs> okay, all right. Well, we were talking about sleep, but one thing that came up last week that Joni Holm really emphasized, she was here with Dr. Holm last week, was the fact that the flu is here. Would you agree with that? It is definitely here. I've seen several cases of both influenza A and influenza B, and these people are feeling miserable. They're high fevers, body aches, they're tired, they're just, they look like they were run over by a truck. Wow. So, and yes. really, all you can do is more rest? More rest, Yes. So if you have, if you're um, older, if you've got chronic health conditions, there is the um, antiviral medications such as Tamiflu. Those are really only beneficial if you get it within the first uh, 48 hours or basically one to two days of symptoms starting. So if you have symptoms, you definitely need to get in and get tested um, if you're in that window. Once you're out of that window, the medications really don't help. Okay, and probably the best thing you could do if you have not gotten that flu shot, you can still get it, correct? Oh, definitely. Please get your flu shot. So, And 
you know, even if you get the flu, if you've had the flu shot, which unfortunately happened to me a few years ago, I had a very mild case. It, it really wasn't as severe as what I've seen my patients suffer from. And that's um, because you had because the shot Because I had first. the shot, exactly. Okay. So, you know, I have seen a couple of people in clinic that, yes, they got their flu shot. Yes, they still got the flu. So it's not 100%, but definitely those cases that I've seen where people have still gotten influenza and had the flu shot, they're at home recovering. They're not in the hospital. Which is good. Which is good. And I've already had to send um, someone to the hospital for influenza. So it is, it is a tough thing. Really take care of yourself. Avoid it if you can. We're going to take our final break. Thank you for listening. We will be back right after these words. The American Academy of Pediatrics has issued media guidelines for preschoolers that are helpful for parents and grandparents. Under the age of two, media should be very limited and only used when adults are standing by to co-view, talk, and teach. For example, video chatting with family along with their parents. For children 18 to 24 months, if you want to introduce digital media, choose high quality programming and use media together with your child. For children aged two to five, limit screen time to no more than one hour per day. Find other activities for your children to do that are healthy for their bodies and mind. Choose media that is interactive, nonviolent, educational, and pro-social. If you have questions about social media for children, speak with your primary care provider at the Avera Medical Group Brookings, 697-9500. Welcome back to Prairie Doc Radio. Today, Dr. Holm is not with us. And uh, I have to tell you, the next two weeks, neither he nor I will be here because next Wednesday is Christmas, and the Wednesday after that is New Year's Day, and I don't even know if Bob will be here. Who knows who will be here on those days? So we'll be into January before you are able to hear Dr. Holm and I again, but we will be back with you in January. Today, we have Dr. Jill Cruz with us, and I say Dr., it is an MD after your degree, Dr. Cruz. It's D.O. Can you explain to us what, why you're a doctor and you're practicing medicine, but you don't have an MD degree? What yes. are you, doctor? So, uh, <laughs> D.O. stands for Doctor of Osteopathic Medicine. So it's considered an equivalent degree to an MD. I have to do all the exact same training as an MD. Actually, I can sit for MD boards. Um, but there's medical schools, basically, back in the 1800s, there was a physician, Dr. Andrew Taylor Still. He was a MD, went to medical school, and noticed that there was a lot of um, issues with uh, structure and function. So if someone had a structural problem with their back, like a scoliosis or a bent back, they had a harder time breathing. So he noticed that if your spine or body joints were not in alignment, you could have issues with your health. So he uh, started to develop techniques to help align the body and help improve um, lymphatic flow, blood flow, and he created his own school of medicine because in the 1800s you could do that and called it osteopathic medicine and really was kind of the forerunner of preventative medicine and um, what we call holistic care and that's one of the tenets that osteopathic medicine talks about a lot is uh, treating the whole patient and and the whole body so uh, talked about mind body and spirit health when we're talking about this um, now, we say, how is this different from a chiropractor? Well, that also goes back to the 1800s. Um, I believe it was a Dr. Jones who 
the first chiropractor was from Iowa, came, or was Palmer, I'm sorry, um, went down to shadow with Dr. Still for a summer and said, well, this stuff is really cool. I'm, I'm interested in learning more. And so Dr. Still said, why don't you join my medical school and I'll teach you the rest. And he said, no, thanks. I'm fine. Went back to Iowa, opened the first school of chiropractic medicine because in the 1800s, you, you could, could do, do that. that. You could do that. <laughs> I love it. So oh. ever since then, DOs and chiropractors have had a little bit of uh, animosity towards each other uh, just because of our differences of opinions and, and our training. Um, but we, at one point, were very close to each other. So I do do techniques on the spine. Now, it's not my whole practice. I still do medicine. I still do, you know, like any other MD. If you saw me in the office and you didn't see the initials behind my name, you probably wouldn't notice a difference, honestly. No. And most people don't. And I think most people recognize that doctors of osteopathic medicine are just as well trained and just as qualified as a medical doctor. Yes. But then the chiropractor's a little bit less they can't practice medicine like a doctor they can't like a medical yeah they can't do surgery they can't specialize in uh, and be board certified in um, like uh, surgery I know there are some that are getting extra training in reading x-rays but yeah I, I don't know as much about the chiropractic so I don't want to misspeak and, okay. uh, about them because I'm sure someone will know and correct me. <laughs> uh, well, but we are, again, MDDO is considered equivalent. I did my training at uh, Des Moines University, which is an osteopathic school. It was the second osteopathic school uh, founded by Andrew Taylor Still's nephew, uh, SS Still. And then I went to residency at University of Wisconsin, uh, Madison Baraboo, uh, their rural training program. So I trained alongside MDs. So my training is basically Again, identical. I just have a different set of initials mm -hmm. behind my name. Well, we're very happy to have you yes. here. And uh, it's, it's, you, your practice is uh, well-received in Brookings, and I know that you're as busy as all the other doctors yes. at the clinic. That's and wonderful. I just have a few extra tricks up my sleeve for uh, treating back pain back and pain. neck pain. And right. actually, headaches is what I tend to specialize in, is dealing with uh, some headache pain, especially if it's starting from pain in the neck and, and wrapping up. around. And, yep. It will really make a difference for that patient. Well, thank you so much. And now we are running out of time, but we do hope all of you have enjoyed our Prairie Doc radio program. As always, you can hear more about Dr. Holm online at prairiedoc.org. You may also learn more about the exciting activities of the Healing Words Foundation. Thanks so much to Dr. Jill Cruz for joining me today. Yes. And thanks to all of you for listening to Prairie Doc Radio. I'll close with Dr. Holmes' weekly reminder. Stay healthy out there, people. That's something you like to say, isn't it? I do, it? too. Yes, stay healthy out there. Mm -hmm.